Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 756. Uh, I am now in Salt Lake City, but this morning I got to go to BlizzCon. I'm performing in Salt Lake City tonight, or I probably would have been at BlizzCon all weekend. Next week, the Fun Comfortable Tour continues. Kansas City and Phoenix. Go to FunComfortableTour.com. Bunch of dates in January now, leading up to the special on January 29th. Let's see, the dates are in Nashville, Bloomington, Indiana, I believe Atlantic City, Baltimore, and then San Francisco. I'm pretty sure there might be a few tickets left for the special Fun Comfortable taping. Go to FunComfortableTour.com, and now, from the Nerd Community Corkboard. This weekend is the NKLA Super Adoption Weekend at the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles. If you if you don't live in LA, that's why there's planes. Uh, it is from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. both Saturday and Sunday. Free, fun for humans, fun for dogs, and adoptions start as low as fifty dollars. Go to nkla.org/events for more info. Uh, and then also, comedian John Ozale has a new album out called Snake Oil. John O's a super funny New York-based comic. You can find his album on iTunes or johnozale.com. And, um, oh, and uh, I, my uh, animation company with my friend Shadi Petoskey is, uh, has its first pilot out in the world. It's on Amazon. It's called Danger and Eggs. And it's part of that pilot program that if you watch it, then they will make more of them. So that's the thing. Danger and Eggs, Amazon Prime. Uh, go there, watch it, please. It is fant- it's, it's SpongeBobby in nature, so uh, kids and stoners alike will adore it. And uh, yeah, so go there, uh, review it. I think that helps a lot. That helps. I think the record for reviews is 2,500. If we could break that, that would be amazing. If not, I will go to hell, all right? Fine. You want, you want me to go to hell? I'll go to hell for asking you to help me out on this. But, uh, yeah, but it really is fantastic. So great job to Shaddy and uh, everyone over at, at Peony for making Danger and Eggs over on uh, Amazon Prime. This episode is Nick Hornby, who is promoting his new film, Brooklyn. It's a movie he wrote that's in theaters right now with uh, Saoirse Ronan, who has been on the podcast before. And uh, uh, Donald Gleason is also in it. And, uh, and also his fantastic collection of books you should get. If you haven't read a Nick Hornby book, you absolutely High Fidelity, one of my all-time faves. Matt brought a first edition High Fidelity uh, copy to, to the podcast, and Nick graciously signed it. Uh, very fine man, good dude, genius, and we were lucky to have him on the podcast. It's Nerdist Podcast number 756 with Nick Hornby. Now entering Nerdist.com. Yeah, I'm a Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. Is it like a fresh dessert? Oh, it's like a, it's like a candle shop. Oh, love it. <laughs> it's like a candle shop sprouted up in a cake oven. Like it's the greatest stuff. Everything about it. I, I, I used to smoke twenty cigarettes a day, and I, I can't believe that I ever did it. Well, you didn't have those before. exactly. These weird future devices. (laughs) They look so futury. They look so... I mean, it it definitely looks like if Kirk was having some type of a summit with some alien... Sure. That they would would pass these out. Oh, this is part of their tradition. Yeah, you can see them scattered around a 3D chessboard. Yeah, with the 3D chessboard. This would be enough for my (laughs) sci-fi (laughs) movie. 
my only special effect. <laughs> the, only, the only technology you care about. You, kept, you kept trying to write it into Brooklyn. They were like, it's not period, Nick. It's not. No, no. Trust no, me. I love smoked, the smell of it. They roll smoked unfiltered. <laughs> I'll do the movie, but the Italian we have guy to would it. have this. <laughs> yeah, he would. He would. He absolutely would. Hey, before we make out, huh? What about this? You know, until they make these, someday I think the, the smart combination will be to make this a hotspot. Like if they could put some type of a, a data device in uh, there yeah. to make to make your uh, well, there the, is like uh, I've read about uh, malware being on them because they charge USB and they're made in China. Sure, so you plug them into plug your computer. In sometimes they'll dump malware into your computer without you knowing. You know that is fucked up, but genius. It's also like why would you plug that into your computer? Instead of the 9 million USB plug-in device. Like, we have de- wall plugs everywhere. I know, but well, if you... In, a, in America, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I plug this into my computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, enjoy your Chinese malware. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> uh, it's an honor to have you on. It is a huge honor to have you on. It's I very nice to be here. I mean, uh, I've, uh, you know, I'm sure people gush on you all the time, but... High Fidelity was one of those things that just changed my life. I mean, it just completely, you know. I, I feel like when you're young, you see you, you everything is new and exciting to you, and it expands the horizon of what you seem to understand. And as you get older, it gets harder and harder to find those moments. And High Fidelity is one of those moments like, oh, my God, this, is, this defines me. This is the new. I mean, it's uh, honestly, I can't thank you enough for that. Thank you. That thing you said though I, I i quite often think that we are a great big piece of paper when we're in our teens and these people come along and scribble and they you know martin scorsese bob dylan <laughs> and 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 as you get older there are fewer and fewer spaces yeah. left so it takes a lot for someone to be able to get into your head and put your name their name in a corner somewhere do you still have corners do you are you still yeah, finding I still spaces? Got corners i still got corners and and i uh, I love new stuff. You know, I, I can't listen to the same music over and over again forever. I am so I want to find new things, and I want to find new movies, and I want to find new books. Definitely. I because I was reading a Rolling Stone article with you, and you said was was it a, was the artist name Andy Rau? Oh uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Rauch. Yeah. Rausch. Yes. Rausch. Andy yes. Rausch. Uh, so I listened to him because you recommended it, and it was fucking great. Oh, good. <laughs> Never. Yeah. Kind of reminded me a little bit, I don't know why, after I listened to him, then I went and listened to America's Greatest Hits. Do you know the band America? I do know the band America. He had, there, there's, there's kind of a cool 70s-ish vibe to some of his well, vocals. Well, I've never heard anything by America apart from A Horse With No Name. Oh, really? Yeah. My friend, I've got to introduce <laughs> you to history, the greatest hits of America. <laughs> Sister Golden Hair, Ventura Highway, Only In Your Heart. I mean, come on. When, before you leave today, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to gift you via iTunes. America's wow. greatest hits. Thank you. A so gift much. from an American. <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs> America's so weird. They make us listen to a band called America. I didn't know it was actually America that bad. <laughs> it's all of America. It's all of America. You gave us the Beatles. We're handing you America. <laughs> well, I, I'm so sorry. I, I, <laughs> yeah, we win. Uh, I guess you win that war a little bit. I guess maybe you win that war a little bit. Have you bit. tried Chicago? How about Boston? <laughs> Kansas, Kansas, <laughs> dust in the wind. We're not great at names here. It's really, yeah, actually, if you were going to go on the names, you wouldn't really quite get the best of America. Are there <laughs> are there bands called like Leeds, Wales? <laughs> there are. No, no. No. Of course not. 
<laughs> you're, not, you're not that stupid. Where is Toto in America? Toto in America. <laughs> uh, technically Kansas. Technically uh, Kansas. That right? Well, yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. was on the plains down in Africa. Yeah. I, I like that. Um, have you heard that guy who does the stand-up routine about horse with no name? No. Uh, it, it's really well. It's just a little thing. He says. You're in the desert. You've got nothing to do. Name the fucking horse. (laughs) (laughs) That's totally a joke I would want to tell now to a bunch of millennials who are like, what are you fucking talking about? (laughs) Now I'm going to buy all you America's greatest. (laughs) What horse? The greatest racing horse of all time? American American Pharaoh? Pharaoh? (laughs) (laughs) It's got the name America in it. Yeah. Well, we are pretty America-centric here. Do you find that... uh, Amusing or irritating, or how do you perceive that? Um, well, we've always thought a lot about America, and uh, you know, I thought a lot about America when I was a kid. Um, when when I bought Marvel comics and they had those adverts in the back with those toys, um, I just couldn't believe what you had. And, and, and everyone used to talk about it because there was so little stuff in England. And um, and then in the seventies, uh, you had films like A Year Before Us, and and books yeah. came out at completely different times. I was talking to Colin Toy Bean about this, um, the the guy who wrote Brooklyn that. Um, he said he can remember that there was a rumour in England that um, that uh, I think Saul Bellow had written a new novel. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and intellectual friends said, have you heard this? Have you heard this? That there's a new Bellow novel? And then somebody went to America and they, look for the Bellow, look for the Bellow, see if you can find this Bellow novel that we don't have. And it, but it was the same with movies and R&B. And, and we had our own stuff that you didn't have. But um, now, of course, it's all one big mush. It's all smushed together. Now you get James Bond movies 12 days before us. Yeah. Do you have your tickets for Spectre yet? I saw a screening of it last week. Oh, you did? uh, I'm going tonight at 8, 7. You're going back? Yeah. There are two. There are three things. There are three things. That, no, I'm sorry. There are four things that define Matt Myron. I'm going to okay. tell you exactly what they yeah. are. Uh-huh. Star Trek. Uh-huh. The Red Sox. Yeah. NASA. Yeah. James Bond. Yeah, I would throw guitars in there. Too. And guitars, left-handed yeah. guitars. Yeah. Rare left-handed guitars. Go. I'm really interested in where this Bond ranks for you. This movie is. It is. I would say you asked the, the right guy. Best. He actually did a ranking of all the Bond we, films. I did it. The Times of London. They did called you? me up and were like, "Hey, really? vote in this thing." Because he has us. a James Bond podcast <laughs> called James so Bond. Like, it's <laughs> just wrong. <laughs> the Times of London. They asking you. America! It was hilarious. It was yeah. like me and my co-host and like. Um, uh, Oh, God, I'm trying to remember who else was on that list. And then it was just a bunch of properly English people that were asked this, and we were like the two Americans on the So what's what's your panel. list? But it was my... I would rank this almost as good as Casino Royale, the 2005 Casino Royale, and which is... Which is number nine. Which, <laughs> no, which is, which is number two in the whole thing for me. From Russia with Love is my favorite James Bond movie. Casino Royale... And then I would say Spectre is very close. Really? It's very close. You liked it better? Than, hence, saw- the, hence the, we're going to the screening tonight. We're going to really, now that we've had the experience of seeing it, seeing it, now we can actually go and 
see all the things Analyze. again. Go, go and actually enjoy it. Go and... The, the, the nerves just, will... Yeah, it's gone. I don't have to worry. Is James Bond going to die? <laughs> Are you a Bond fan? No. No, not at all. <laughs> but I've seen the movie. In England, you have to go. Uh, the, the Queen said that, that you have to go. And it's like... Um, it's something like Christmas. You know, it's like everything in the shops yeah. is James Bond. Uh, you know, it's James Bond toilet paper, James Bond cat litter. Everything right. is James Bond. And I have kids, and, you know, it was like, well, we got to go. Uh, you know, it's it's the law, so... <laughs> it has been decreed. When are we going to go? I was, I was just out. in London for my honeymoon, and I bought these boots, which are in the new Spectre movie. Oh, my God. And, Get and those off the table, for Christ's Christ sake. They're, they're Crockett and Jones, guys. It's a great British company. They make them in Northampton. They're handmade. Yeah, great. Uh, the whole line of shoes is now available if you want to go to your local. I don't. You can't. You can't get them in America. Oh, well, that's a shame. I'll just keep wearing the shoes I already have on. I hope they gave you those, did they? No, God, I bought them. And I'm, all right, how and much? And you've just, uh, enough. <laughs> I know, they're $9,000. $9,000. Yeah. You know, and this this actually, talking about this actually reminds me of uh, um one of the quotes from High Fidelity that I have said over and over and over again to people is that it's it's that idea of it's what you like, not what you are like. That you are essentially defined by the things that you populate your. I mean, and this is the perfect example. I don't this know is a what perfect. You're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 but I am surprised that it ranked that high for you. Yeah, it really did. I think they did a fantastic. I think you, you part of it was you, just you don't after- like plot so much. In, you know what? Not a fan of plot. You don't need a plot in a James Bond movie. You don't need one. You need the MacGuffin. What's the evil guy trying to do? And how will James Bond stop? Yeah, I didn't That's understand what he was trying to do. Really, he was trying to stop surveillance. That was the big. He was trying to stop Phil Spector. These uh, are, exactly. You know what's interesting is these the model sunglasses, the Tom Ford sunglasses he wears in the movie are called the Snowdens. and the uh, boots are also named see? the Snowdens. You see? Interesting. I'm just saying. Very pro so, Snowden movie. <laughs> so you would never, you never see yourself writing a a big crazy spy movie or a big crazy. No, I would rather kill myself. <laughs> That's what Daniel Craig said about playing James Bond. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's great when you get the job, and then ten years in, you're like, Jesus Christ. I, I actually know a couple of the guys who've who've worked on on the last few, and um, you know, it's such a roller coaster for them. They're fired, they're rehired, they're fired, they're rehired. Purvis and Wade? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know that they're very familiar. Very familiar. Yeah. And I feel like I don't. I feel like I gave them the wrong. Once they had, they had, they had John Logan writing this mostly, and then they had to bring in, they had to bring back in Purvis and Wade, and then I was like, oh, maybe the problem's John Logan. <laughs> <laughs> so you you weren't so keen on Skyfall. Skyfall was Skyfall was good. Yeah, but I don't think it was. One of the epics of no, world cinema, like I don't. Like yeah, I think Spectre okay. was just because it had been so long since we'd gotten a James Bond movie that had uh, the gadgets that weren't out of control, invisible Aston Martins. You know, it was like you know gadgets. It had M. It had mission. It had like he, he didn't have to go really go rogue and leave the service like. He's had to do in like the last four movies. It's been the same sort of. Did you like Quantum of Solace? I didn't really like Quantum of Solace. Quantum of Solace is good when, <laughs> when, <laughs> when. No, no, listen and hear him out. You're when. having a stroke. Nope. <laughs> when you watch it directly after watching uh, Casino Royale, because yeah, it, so is do that. Oh, okay. no, it is a direct. Oh, okay. It is a direct sequel. It picks up. 
two seconds after Casino Royale ends. But how does that make it a better movie? Because the plot of it is so on its own. It's like, what the fuck am I watching? But when you see it together... Plus, that movie had some problems. There was a writer's strike, so they had no one to finish the script. So it was like Also, there was Dan a hydrogen Craig hotel and, in the middle of a desert. What, how is that not... That's your problem with something in James Bond? A hydrogen-powered hotel in the middle of the desert? Yes, because it was so divisive. It's like, well, obviously they're going to blow that up because it's... They're basically... Of course they're going to blow that up. Any building he walks into, you can think, they're going to blow that up. I like the way that this is like a concession to the movie, though. That they didn't have any writers. There was a writer's strike. Give it a break. It wasn't written. I'll tell you, I heard they improvised the entire thing. It was just, they were like, okay, you're James Bond. Would've Go, you're great. in the desert. Would've been great. Spectre felt like that to me. Did it really be like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. It's like let's blow something up because we don't know what else is going to happen. I think they could have blown more stuff up, honestly. Inspector could have blown. Some I think more they could have blown some more stuff. Up. We're, this... we're different people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, high fidelity was great. Could have used more explosions. <laughs> One more explosion. One explosion outside I, the record I shop. I've never written anything with a gun in it, and I wouldn't know where to where to start. Ever? Yeah, never. But you know what's interesting is that if I, I I do think I would assume that you understand the concept of obsession, like obsessing over oh, no, something no, as I, an Arsenal I, fan. I, I, or I love a... talking about. <laughs> I love talking to people who know stuff about stuff. Yeah, and he knows I, stuff I about stuff. <laughs> Too much stuff. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever written about something that you didn't know in, already that you thought, well, that seems interesting, and then you got sort of sucked in, and then that informed your writing? Um, well, I've just started to write period, um, and, I, and I'd never thought of doing it before, and it, it began with the movie An Education, mm -hmm. and then I wrote a novel called Funny Girl, which was set just after An Education finished, and, um, you know, it's kind of stuff I knew a little bit about, because both of those things are set in the 60s, but um, I really, really enjoyed learning stuff that I didn't know. Um, but I've always wondered what it must be like to be, say, Michael Crichton. Um, because <laughs> Jurassic Park must have seemed like a really great idea. But I'm sure that was all it was to him, was like a really great idea. But for the rest of his life, yeah. wherever he goes, people are saying, now, was that a triceratops or was that a, you know, my, my obsessive book was Fever Pitch. And, um, and, and I, I still have the same obsession. And if people want to come up to me and talk about Arsenal... It's not like I go, oh, I'm so over that. Because <laughs> I'm not. You know, they, they, Arsenal got destroyed yesterday, and, and I feel bad about it. And I've already spoken to people about it. But it, it's an ongoing thing, so I can stand by the book in that way. Also, Arsenal is still playing matches, and dinosaurs have pretty much done all they're going to do. There's no new yes. There's no also, new dinosaur. Michael Crichton, rest in peace. Michael, yeah, I guess, I guess if you are Michael Crichton and people are like, well, what did the Diplodocus say? But, and then you can just shield yourself with a sarcophagus of money. Uh, yes. Because I yeah. created ER, too, by the way. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, right. He did. Yeah, he did, yeah. Damn. Damn it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, you know, I wonder, it's it's interesting the idea of the trappings of success because you, you know, when you, you set out, I'm sure you have some idea. Well, I would want, it'd be nice if people appreciated this on a larger scale so I can continue doing this thing. And then all of a sudden something that was just one of many ideas in your head becomes a thing that defines you. Yes. And that seems... I mean, to the layperson will go, well, fuck you, you're making money and you get to do what you want. But to that person, do you feel like that's creatively stifling or? Yeah, I would think it would be 
creatively stifling. Uh, to, to be associated with one thing and to have to do that one thing repeatedly, um, I, I think that's a tough gig, actually. I mean, you've had a lot of hit things. You've had a lot of hit books and, and hit movies, but if it, if it were something on the scale of Jurassic Park, what would you do? What would you, how would you process that? <laughs> it was interesting. I was on a panel with um, um, Amy Schumer the other day, a screenwriting panel, and um, we were being asked what good advice we'd had, we'd been given. And Amy Schumer said Judd Apatow had told her, don't chase the money. And uh, she said, oh, really? And he said, yeah. He said, there's nothing to buy. <laughs> and she said, really? There's nothing to buy? He said, yeah, there's really nothing to buy. Just crap. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It, it is true. so true. I mean, if you, you know, do you need, if you have $10 million, do you need $100 million? Like, what are you going to do with that extra? Just give it away. And when I was younger and I didn't have any money and you you maybe opened some men's magazine and there was some watch in there and it was like a, a five thousand pound watch and and you think oh that must be a really good watch which is a little bit better than the four thousand pound one which is a little bit better <laughs> than the three thousand pound one and then when you've got a bit of money you realize that these are things that are just invented to soak money off rich people absolutely there's nothing there <laughs> Absolutely. Apart from that they cost five thousand pounds. Great watch, though. <laughs> Is that one of the James Bond watches? Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's look at the fucking James Bond watch. I don't remember when I was in high you school. You know, those are eleven pounds in London. <laughs> oh, they are not. Believe me, they are eleven pounds. <laughs> but when we see an American coming, <laughs> five thousand. What the American price is that? But for you, five thousand pounds. <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> You seem like a loud American. <laughs> Damn. So you gotta, you got to fake your accent. No, I just remember... They were little stocking presents for my kids. <laughs> full of Omega watches. They're basically like a sand pit full of Omega <laughs> yes, watches. That's right, yeah. You throw them under tables to balance the table. <laughs> but there definitely is that, there definitely is that thing, that... that biological thing of I guess accomplishment or maybe it's tied to our egos but but the first time that I ever worked and paid for something was a pair of sunglasses that I thought were going to be really cool and I worked and worked and worked and they were like a hundred bucks my parents went well it's expensive but it's your money you can do whatever you want and I got the sunglasses and I was happy with them for about a half a day and then I don't even remember <laughs> what happened after that first thing I bought was a Joe Pass Epiphone Emperor Two, left-handed. Do you still have it? Yes, it hang, literally hangs next to my desk. Are you happy that you bought that? I always look at it and think fondly of the summer I slaved away at a pharmacy. To Could you explain this. what he just said? It was uh, some sort of fancy left-handed guitar. guitar oh, okay. That. I mean, it was right. you know, six hundred dollars is not huge. What was the first thing you bought when, like, when you finally were like, "Oh my gosh, I'm working"? Do you remember what your first big purchase was? Uh. <laughs> it's so, I mean, it's so pitiful. I, I, I think I went into, like, a Virgin Megastore. Oh! And, and I thought, I'm get, I can buy anything I want in here. And, and I, 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 like, got a, uh, a trolley. Yeah. And was, I filled it with, like, 25 things. That was it. You know, that was, the, those were the limits of my imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what any of those 25 no, things are? not at all. You were just They're probably still in. in the shrink wrap somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's really special. But it's a good lesson to learn. It's a good lesson to learn because I think people, 
Wait, what's the lesson? The lesson there's nothing is nothing to spend it on. Well, yeah, there's nothing to spend it on, and even if you do, it's the, that moment of acquisition, and then that's the thing. Like that's almost like it's almost like a hit of that thing where you just get a quick little buzz of yeah. Oh, I just get now what? No, I guess I got to do that again, and I got to do that again. Interesting. And and also, I think when I started earning money, I'd got to an age. You know, I, I didn't publish my first book till I was 35, and I was kind of at an age where my tastes were set. And, and it would have felt really stupid to suddenly start dressing in a different way. I mean, you can spend a load of money on clothes if, if you want to. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but how do you start doing that after you've reached a certain age? So I'm going to throw away these free T-shirts Also, now. don't you think that maybe because of your British culture that you would have shown up at a pub the next day in super fancy clothes and people were like, the fuck is your problem? Yeah, well, there's that, too. You've got to, you've got to start doing a lot of things differently. You've got to, and you've got to start ditching your friends. Yeah. <laughs> for, fa- for fancier friends. Yes. yeah. <laughs> you, have to have, you have to have two persona that you... You, you, you know, you, you have uh, pub Nick and then uh, fa- tea time Nick. One of the things that interests me in, in L.A. is that a lot of the, the Hollywood people... You know, they, they earn astonishing amounts of money, but they have to keep earning that money. And mostly it seems to be because of the numbers of people they employ. Oh, my God. It is. Ne- Listen, I- I'm never going to complain about the life that I have and, 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 you know, and I do very well. And this is not a complaint. This is just a fact. Eighty percent of what you make goes to other people. At like eighty percent, like right out the door. So whatever you, whatever you go, oh, they're going to pay you this. Okay, you just figure that you know because half of that's taxes, ten percent's agent, ten percent manager. There's publicist, lawyer. There's like there's so many people that sort of come, and it's just kind of the all right. Well, as long as I can keep doing what I'm doing, that's why it doesn't really bother me because I'm still doing what I. But yeah, it is. It's an exorbitant amount of of, of goes out to other people. Because we don't have managers in England. There's you know obviously if you're a writer, you have an agent. But, but then that whole other thing of, of personal managers and publicists and, and that kind of thing, it, that, that's very mystifying to me. Oh, sure, because as a writer, I would imagine that the, the, whatever publisher you're working with, they handle all of your press yeah, and they exactly. handle, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not like you need ongoing PR. It's like you write a book and then you come out and talk about it and then go back and write another one. And Yeah, although this last year or so, they there's suddenly been a lot of product, and um, and so um, I've been doing lots more talking than I normally do. <laughs> so I had Wild and a novel and Brooklyn um, quite quickly yeah. close together, and uh, and uh, as a TV series that's just been shot in the UK as well. So um, th- there's more more publicity than writing, but usually I'm happy just doing the writing. My, uh, the question I like to ask a lot of writers, just because I want to, I want to know because I'm trying to figure it out. But when your brain is at its limit and it is saying to you're staring at your screen and your brain is saying, "I don't care if you punch me with a rock. I am not spitting out one more word. I cannot." You just feel like you're at the edge of what you're capable of doing that day. What do you do? How do you push through that? Um. This is a this is a very dark secret, and it's something I've discovered relatively recently. Um, it's uh, jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Really, like thousand piece yeah, complex. Yeah, thousand piece. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a, a desk like this, and then another desk here, and and this desk here has got a jigsaw puzzle on it. So I turn around, and I start 
fiddling and it's so cool because it's just enough to occupy your mind but it leaves great chunks of your mind free whereas before what I was doing was messing around on the internet and and I'd get right out of the zone completely by reading people's Facebook posts and, and <laughs> <laughs> looking at lists of the uh, 5,000 greatest James Bond films. <laughs> like we that. don't need to do that. you got Matt Meyer right here. That's right. the most fascinating answer I've heard. But if you, if you, if you do that reading stuff and read junk, then, I, then it takes you out of the page, no doubt about it. But the, the jigsaws keep me in the page, and uh, I've just been doing one after the other. That's fantastic. And I guess it's also a real-world application for essentially – Problem solving and piecing together. Yeah, and um, and of course, paying incredibly close attention to something. Um, it's like, is that the fold of that guy's jacket on there? And um, and I think having to look really, really closely um, probably helps you as well. So th- so the problem solving and and the close attention to detail. And I, I do it until suddenly I can see that there might be another sentence in That's me. That's fantastic. I've never heard that before. What do you do with the puzzles when you're done? Do you smash them up and put them back in the box? Yeah, smash them up and put oh. them back. I just, I just did this... Um, this jigsaw puzzle that was the cover of Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> Did you finish it? I finished it. Oh, but it, you know the, um, the the Beatles letters in flowers. Yes, that uh, was the hardest uh, thing I've ever oh done my in my life. God, it was harder than any book, any movie, because you'd pick up a piece and it was just flowers. You couldn't look at it because it's so big. You couldn't look at it and say, "Oh, that's the E." Oh my it's just God. red flowers. So that's just trial and error. It was, just, just... Tri- it was just trial and error. Uh, you have to make a separate section of just the flower pieces and then try to... I might have a photo to show you. That, I would love to see that. <laughs> um, uh, I almost wonder if your brain gets well, so frustrated keep... with the puzzle. It's like, a fine, I'll write, I'll write. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's freedom from the torture I get, of I writing. I can't do this shit anymore. I keep all my guitars next to my desk. So, like, I can just turn away from my screens and just pick up a guitar because that just shuts off the part of my brain that. First of all, that is a piece. Oh, that's really horrible looking. That's so beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's I'm getting stressed trying to figure out. That's, uh, but you know, it was Peter Blake, uh, you know, this great British artist yeah. who designed that cover, and those colours are so him. That's from the drum. That's from the big drum oh, in, wow. the, in, in the centre. Um, and uh, I can find, I'm sure. Sorry. No, that's all right. I'm giving you silence. You no, you're silence. not at all. Listen, it doesn't matter. The, I think a lot of people think that, well, I'll just go waste time on the internet. You're, it, you're right. It completely, because it sucks up the worst parts of your brain. And it just, really does. And just mm-hmm. chews up all the creative energy. And also, if I spend a day doing a jigsaw puzzle and I don't do any writing at all, I don't want to shoot myself. I, think, <laughs> I did a really good day's work today. You I, I got something. like 150 pieces done. <laughs> I don't think anyone has spent six hours fucking around on the internet and gone, I really accomplished something today. <laughs> I, I read a lot it. of Wikipedia Feeling articles. Feeling completely sick. You, I, you know, you just feel sick with yourself. Yeah, that really is time you're not going to get back. But it is, you know, the internet does trick you into thinking that you're doing something, Mm. but you're not really doing something. I got it, finally. Oh, that is spectacular. That is spectacular. Oh, my God. 
Look at the look at the letters. How big how big is the puzzle? Is it about uh, oh, I mean, you saw the- Yeah, it would be the width of this desk. Oh yeah, that fucking those would be impossible. <laughs> They're just all red. <laughs> it, 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 well, I, there were times I can tell you, gentlemen and ladies, where I thought I'm not going to get through this, but I stuck it out. I mean, for those of you at home who've seen the the, the cover of the Sgt. Pepper, of course, everybody has uh, Edgar Allan Poe, who's in the back row. It's uh, his face is four pieces. <laughs> so. <laughs> He's in the very back row of that. His face is four pieces. That's, that's the other thing is um, uh, I have a friend. We go away, my family and I, with, with a couple of other families every summer. And, and, and a guy, a friend of mine, he always buys a jigsaw puzzle for everyone to do, you know, when they're not doing anything else on holiday. And he says there's got to be some educational content in it. And uh, we don't want to do pussycats. We want the kids to be able to learn something while they're putting stuff together. And this one is so educational because of yeah, the people. Yeah. And, people and, and each time I was looking people up and thinking, ah, I didn't know that was who that was. And I didn't know, like, I think Shirley Temple's in it yeah. twice or yep. three times or something. And then there's one Bowery boy instead of the Bowery boys. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Wait, who was it that wouldn't be? It was the, it the was Bowery the other boys? Bowery the other boy boys were like, said, no, no we're not yeah, going to yeah. be on the <laughs> What is this? I don't know. No. Are you, uh, are you a completionist? Do you need to, if you start it, do you have to finish? Yeah, yeah. And um, invariably when I finish one of these, there's a piece missing which I've dropped on the floor somewhere. It's gone down the the back and I, I can't bear it so, uh, I've always found them so far oh thank god yeah. you mean in that case you would just have to buy another puzzle and find <laughs> yeah, the piece that fits start, in there there's no again. Yeah, you'd yeah. never <laughs> be able to I, I would never be able to just be satisfied and go oh it's just that one piece is missing that would drive me crazy no, it, it does drive you crazy but, um, it is, it's very satisfying How, what do you learn I, I honestly and this is a serious question what do you learn about yourself in the way that you approach puzzle solving what have you learned about how you approach? Um, well, the other thing that I used to do um, was cryptic crosswords. And, um, you know, in, in, um, uh, in England, we're, we're, we have these amazing cryptic crossword compilers, and, and uh, the Guardian newspaper has, has fantastic compilers. And I'd switch from writing where I was stuck to doing the, the, uh, the crossword. But then I'd get stuck. And uh, the thing about jigsaws, you can't get stuck. That's true. That you can always keep going. And, and I, I so wish that there was some job <laughs> where maybe I should just work on an assembly line. I mean, in a way, you do work on an assembly line. You're building a story. You're assembling a story. But it keeps coming to this juddering halt. And, uh, <laughs> well, you just get faulty machinery on the line. Or industrial <laughs> action. It's internal industrial action. <laughs> but that's the thing, too, is that... Uh, you know, I guess when you're writing something, all the pieces are somewhere in the universe. You don't necessarily have them. I guess at a certain point, you just have to have faith that, well, I've done this before. I guess I'll figure it out. Yeah, and, and of course, the problem is an infinite number of pieces. So when, when you're doing a first draft of something and the page is blank, then there's any way you can go. There are, there are millions of ways that you can go, and you have to choose the one that feels like the best way, but it might not be the best way. But with the jigsaw, there's only one way to go. <laughs> the simplicity of that's really nice. Exactly. The math yeah. on that really is satisfying. Yeah. You start with the borders? I mean, that's what you do, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Pick out the edges. You have to pick out the edges. How yeah, else would you do it if you didn't pick out the edges? Maybe well, you, you, Paul McCartney's well, you, face and you're like, I can start here. 
Yeah, or the drum. Yeah. You can see lots of drum pieces. I bet there were a lot of people arguing. They're like, ah, oh, those goddamn borderists. I'm a centrist. I start in the center. I work my way out. <laughs> I start at the French horn and go out. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a French horn in everything that I'm solving. <laughs> I mean, so with with a movie like Brooklyn, where you're taking someone else's work, and do you feel any more or less responsibility when it's not your own, when you're translating someone else's work into a different medium? No, I don't feel any more responsibility. Movies are so brutal in terms of the numbers of fences that are put in your way. Sure. That um, if you don't do a good job, then actually no one will ever get to know about it. I guess that's true. Um, it's a self-select, you know, it's a Darwinian thing. <laughs> and, um, and if you can get to the stage where there's a script that actors and a director really like and that people want to fund, then that's the validation. And, and then you don't feel so embarrassed about showing the original author of the thing. <laughs> right. So, look, you know, I hope you like it. Lots of other people seem to like it, and they want to make a movie of it. Uh, that that's quite a strong hand to go to someone with. Sure, but um, if if you write something, no one wants to be in it, no one wants to fund it. He probably doesn't want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're okay. So you're, you totally so get a pass. Clear. Yeah, because it's because it's happened to you on the other side too, where yeah. someone's taken your work yeah. and they like I know Fever Pitch. You wouldn't. It was just like oh, they just made an American version. Yes. Was, well, well like, they made a British version. Well, first. the British yeah. version first, but I mean, and then they went and made the because Colin Firth was in the British version. Yeah, I rented that on VHS. And then Fallon was in the American version. It was just like a totally different. Well, the the American version was a remake of the English movie, rather than an adaptation of my book. Yeah. Um, my book was a, a, a memoir that takes place over 25 years, and it wasn't a movie. And I adapted it myself because it had to be something else to be a movie. Right. Um, and, and so there was a whole different narrative and a whole central relationship. And that was what they took and, and, and moved to the Red Sox. Yeah, I, was, I remember being, I was such a fan of Fever Pitch, the book. That I remember when they were making the Red Sox one, I was like, oh, okay, that seems like the franchise you'd want for that. And then when we won, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Just sort of ruined the movie. Because <laughs> well, they, they were filming it the year of the championship. It was incredible because they... You know, one thing I really like about this is that it's the only ever example of um, where Americans decided to take an upbeat, feel-good British movie and turn it into a downbeat <laughs> Red Sox version with the miserable ending, yeah. and they chose the Red Sox because they provide the miserable ending every year. Every Without year, eighty-six so, years in a row. Eighty-six miserable years endings. in a row. So they start making this movie, and it was going to end miserably. And then people on the production are going, "Red Sox having quite a good season." And then, <laughs> oh my god, Red Sox. They're in the postseason, and then everyone's yeah. like joking and saying, "Wouldn't it be really funny if this was the year?" And everyone went, "Yeah," and it, they're in the World Series final. Yeah. Well, it was also like you know, so we were they down. St- so they still managed even in winning to let you down. We were down three games to none to the Yankees, so it looked like we were just going to do what we, we always do. We were home do. free, no problem <laughs> yes. whatsoever. No team in the history of baseball has ever come back from that deficit. Leave it to the Red Sox to continue that wonderful tradition of not coming back from that deficit, and then all of a fucking sudden, 
we decide, oh, this year we're going to fuck Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) They made that decision. I'm sure in the locker room, the coach was like, guys, we need to fuck Hollywood. You see what they're trying to do. Then, like, the movie ends and they're in St. Louis winning the World Series. And And Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore are there. On the pitch. Yeah. Yeah. On the the field, as as you say. It's almost like Major League, the movie Major League. Uh, or if they expected yeah, the team I mean, to they tank. They weren't going to move the franchise. They weren't going to move the franchise like to Major Florida. Major League, like the owner wanted. No. You ever see Major League? It's an American no. movie about uh, the Cleveland Indians. It's a comedy from the 80s that weirdly still holds up. It kind of does. It does. I watch it on, whenever it's on Comedy Central, I'll just stop and go, all right. <laughs> what is it that you're seeing? So when you're watching Arsenal play, what is it that you're seeing? What is it that you're feeling? What is it about it that you feel so connected to? I know that sounds like a superficial question, but I don't understand sports very well. Okay. So I'm always interested to hear what it is when someone is connected to a team. What is it that they are extracting? Well, it, it becomes more and more, unfortunately, as you go along. Um, so, you know, it started with me going with my dad and now I'm going with my kids. And um, pretty much my entire life has been constructed around it but in ways that nobody would notice um so all my friends are arsenal fans but the arsenal fans i've chosen are writers or movie producers or musicians or whatever so i've got all that as well but but the arsenal thing comes first and i live right next to the stadium um (laughs) but the stadium is in a really nice part of london uh, so that's completely fine. The kids go to school in the shadow of the stadium and 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 play with other Arsenal supporters uh, and study with other Arsenal supporters. Uh, so well, that comes in handy. There is a kind of lifestyle thing. Well, when I'm watching, it's changed as I got older because I can see it as part of a much larger narrative. So. If there's a real crisis at the club, then I think, oh, this is interesting. Something now might change. It's like, um, you know, there's only been like ever 12 editors of the Times or something in 200 years, and and Arsenal don't change their coach very often. And um, and when he's under pressure, you think this could be a a moment of history now, and then it doesn't happen. They they start winning. But um, so I'm looking at it as part of this parallel historical universe now um, that all these things are going to be part of the history of the club my kids meanwhile are like what I used to be which is they just feel sick Mm. before a game and they get very angry and uh, uh, last night they, they played this really tough German team in Germany and everyone knew they were going to get hammered and they did they got absolutely annihilated it was embarrassing and my wife chose to go to the cinema and employ a babysitter because she didn't want to be with the boys. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to be tearing up the... they're going to be tearing... Yeah, and, and, and she, you know, she went to the cinema with a friend, she went out for a drink, and she's finding the babysitter saying, are they asleep? And uh, he said, yeah, they're asleep. And then she went home. <laughs> 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 and that is an entirely sensible way to deal with the Hornbys uh, <laughs> on the night that Arsenal's playing. Whenever Arsenal's playing, don't yeah. not today. Let's we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll catch them for brunch. I tomorrow. think it's um, I think it's different um, English sports um, because of the size of the country and the length of the season and all kinds of things. So uh, a, a regular English um, Championship season is thirty eight games, nineteen at home and nineteen away, and it's perfectly possible. Well. 
most of us see every home game because there are, there are maybe 25 with bits and pieces of other games as well. So you see every home game. Um, and that's probably maybe 40,000 people going to see every Arsenal home game. But the country is so small that there is a significant subset that goes to every single away game. Mm. Um, so they will see every game of a regular season. Sure. That's maybe nine or 10,000 people. Wow, that's still a lot. It's still a lot, but um, everywhere you go, you can be back that night. Wow, that's uh, true. Because you know, even Newcastle, which is the furthest one away, it's like a four-hour train journey, <laughs> five-hour train journey. And then there is a, about the same number of people who won't miss any of the games in Europe either. Um, so they'll, they'll fly to Munich or they'll be in Greece in a couple of weeks' time. And that's probably four or 5,000 people. Um, so it really is a kind of lifestyle commitment that is enabled by English geography to a certain extent <laughs> and the length of the season. Like the baseball season, you can't do it. Uh, the games 182 are too far games. Away. 182 games. Jesus. That's without the playoffs. Oh, my God. Uh, so you dip in and out in ways that seem alien to us, actually. You, I don't dip. You, I'm always, I watch. You watch. I paid for the fucking satellite channel, so I get the Boston home channel. Like, I just Do you watch night. 182 games? Yeah. <laughs> if I don't watch them, I listen in my car, because with the app, I can listen to the home broadcast. And how do you feel when... I mean, do you feel sick? Because uh, you know you're going to lose 50 games, right? In the, oh, at least? Yeah. yeah. This year we lost uh, 82 game, 84 games. We were just under 500. See, I don't understand how you can go into a season knowing you're going to lose between 50 and 80 You just times. look at it in one series at a time, Nick. You're playing okay. the same team three games in a row usually, three game sets, four game sets. So you just look to win the series each time. Ars- That's how you win. Arsenal's best season was unbeaten. Well, that's never going to happen for me. Yeah. <laughs> 2004, the Invincibles. It's only happened once in, in English soccer history. But, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. And then what happens the next season? Uh, they weren't unbeaten. <laughs> <laughs> the Red Sox owners bought Liverpool. Like oh, they own, really? They yeah. Liverpool, yeah. I don't know what they're trying to do, but... Expand? They well, have a racing got, team, too. We're owned by a guy called Stan Kronke. Who owns a couple of? It's a great name. Yeah, but he owns a couple of. He's married to a Walmart heiress. And uh-huh. He owns a couple of sports teams here. Mm-hmm. That is a that is a Bond villain in the making right there. Oh yeah, He's, he seems quite nice, but he won't put any money in the club. He just takes no. takes money out. Yeah, just takes money out of the yeah. club. Yeah. Is it is the? Uh, well, I guess it is. I mean the the the, the colors and the hats and the is the is the uh, the apparel is as prominent. Over there? Yes, completely. And um, Everyone has to, well, I don't, not grown-ups, but all the kids <laughs> have to wear the new shirts and they have to buy the away shirt and the away socks and they have to have a player's name on the back. And the really vulgar thing about um, uh, English football is that everyone has sponsors and the sponsors' yeah. names are all over the shirt. Ah, fuck. So you walk round with well, they have O2 to or whatever on your <laughs> They shirt. have to do it. There's no commercials because they've got to play 45 minutes and a half. There's oh so much money in the game. And Rupert Murdoch has flooded the game. <laughs> they have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. They could at least take the sponsors' names off the shirt. Oh, so. But then that's extra money. <laughs> yes, and I guess yeah. people are used to it, so but, it's not... You know, Judd Apatow will tell them, there's nothing to spend There's nothing on. to spend it on, Rupert Murdoch! <laughs> what do you want to spend this on? Yes. Uh, well, I like this team, but I also like flying United Emirates. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> well, you know, my team plays at the Emirates. Oh, that's worked out. <laughs> 
It's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's <laughs> I so go grateful. to the Emirates every Saturday. Every so you live in it. You I live, live in the Emirates. Yeah, you do. The uh, beauty of the Red Sox is it's still just called Fenway Park. It's not like AT and T's Fenway Park. You know what I mean? Like all these other ballparks. Are the just... only thing that consoled me when my stadium became the Emirates was thinking about Wrigley Field, and and you kind of forget that. That's yeah, a vulgar, vulgar yeah. commercial yeah. name, and that one day everyone woke up and, oh my God, we're playing at a chewing gum place. <laughs> How disgusting, and then you just forget about you it. You completely forget about it, yeah. although they make it harder to forget about it at places now. Oh, well, everywhere, I mean, the naming rights for stadiums go for so much money. It's like, like the Patriots, American football, they play at uh, Gillette. I, that's what I think would be fun. It's the best a man can get. <laughs> so I think it'd be, I think it would be fun to just. To, that, you know what? That's what you could buy if you had a billion. If you had like a billion and a half dollars, you could buy and get the naming rights to a stadium and just name it like Matt Stadium. So <laughs> you could just you name it at a billion and a half dollars instead of building your own billion and a half dollar stadium. Well, you no, could you could build money. it, but just naming it after yourself. Like, don't name it after a company. Just be like Nick's Stadium. <laughs> Have you ever thought of? Um, um, Buying ad space on a really crappy cable channel. Yes, I have. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I have as a as a hundred percent eighty dollars or something. It's so inexpensive. You know, here though, in in the in America, you'd have to. I've researched this. You pick you pick your region. So it'd be like okay, you know, maybe I'd buy in the Northwest. You yeah. know, I'd hit Portland and Seattle, and you know, maybe a, a chunk of Idaho and Montana. Like you could be up there, and yet, you know, two o'clock in the morning for like fifteen hundred dollars, you can get a run of weird commercial spot. Absolutely. I was thinking of doing Christmas cards uh, <laughs> on on a, on a cable channel. Just happy Christmas to all my <laughs> friends in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> That's genius. Why don't you do that? <laughs> Boy, uh, Nick, why'd you spend money on the whole half hour? I don't understand. (laughs) All you said was, I thought this was only a minute. They're telling me to stretch. I guess I have a half hour. We should all club together. Yeah, we'll all say Merry Christmas. (laughs) No, you'll you'll be the new Bob Ross, but you'll just be doing puzzles instead of paintings. Who's who's Bob Ross? He's a painter. Oh, Nick Hornby, I am going to change your life. Bob Ross. It'd be interesting to see if you like Bob Ross. Bob Ross had a uh, was it public broadcasting? Yeah, it was PBS. Yeah. Yeah, on PBS in the seventies and eighties, this guy named Bob Ross, a, a white guy with a big afro of hair. I'll pull him up so you can see him. In a half hour, he would just he would just paint. He painted landscapes, and he had the most pleasant demeanor. Everything was, I'm going to make a happy cloud here, and then we're going to put an almighty tree right here. And he just showed you, and in a half hour, he would create this gorgeous landscape painting. And uh, Twitch TV, which is a popular live streaming site, just decided recently. I, I, I watch the UT's dead now. I watch the YouTube channel sometimes at night when I go to bed because it's so calming. And Twitch, for his birthday, did like a... 72-hour marathon of, of his shows. It is so fucking calming. The guy would put a happy cloud. And put a happy tree. cloud up there. So you could do the same thing, but with puzzles. You could be the Bob Ross of puzzles. We had a guy called Rolf Harris who did the same thing on kids' TV. Yeah. Quick and not half hour. He used to do one in five or ten minutes. Um, Take that, Bob Ross. So I know, yeah. Uh, but he... Unfortunately, he's now in prison. <laughs> oh no! So many of your, oh no! So many of your folks. So many. Did he help? Did he help, did he no. help Jim fix it? What did he do? <laughs> he was involved in some of the things. Oh. No! Oh. Why? 
Why? We have the highest percentage of incarcerated television personalities. <laughs> Well, you're such a small country, almost everyone's a television personality. <laughs> you know, it's true. It's true. This is almost like, you're almost like to have to run a background check before you give someone a television show. Did you guys all know about Jimmy yeah. Savile then? Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, I was fascinated by it. Yeah. It was incredible. It's like industrial. Yeah. I mean, literally the most horrible things from a per. I mean, it, I mean it'd be like if... Be like if you found out that SpongeBob had a had That's was a cartoon, a, Chris, not a real person. No, I understand. <laughs> I understand. But it's the same kind of like yeah. that type of an iconic. Yeah. You know, oh, like you, Bill you... Cosby or something. But you have no idea. Crazy if that happened. Jimmy Savile was so deeply entrenched <laughs> in the, the consciousness of the comparison. nation. Um, you know, Mrs. Thatcher's best friend. Yep. Endless charities on television all the time. And uh, there's this really spooky interview that Johnny Rutten gave in, like, 1976, 77. And he was being asked about being nasty and a punk rocker and all this kind of thing. And he said, well, I'm not like some people I've heard about, like that that, that Jimmy Savile. I've heard horrible things about him. And uh, that was, yeah, wow. 1976, like... 35 years before anything came out. Who would have thought Johnny Rotten would be a whistleblower? On, exactly. <laughs> he was, they should have listened to him more. Yeah, they should I love have, how they kept Jimmy Savile on that long. And it seems clear that the BBC knew there was something going on yeah, at completely. many points throughout. Yeah. But they yeah. shit-canned Jeremy Clarkson for yes. punching a guy. Yes. <laughs> I guess now there's a zero-tolerance policy. Like It just doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever it is, they're just going to get out of there. Did you go? Or did, were you? Were you? A, did you? Did you ever see the Sex Pistols live when you were? When you were here? Um, no, I didn't. They. I, I pretty much saw all the others, and um, there was one show um, not far from me, and uh, they, that they played, and a friend had a ticket, and I was I was going to see my girlfriend at the time, college girlfriend, and uh, and I called her up and I said I got. Sex Pistols tickets, and and she, she was pissed. You know, she said, "But you know, we we're going out and doing this and doing that," and and I didn't go, and uh, and I've never forgotten it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it was I learned something that you just have to be ruthless when opportunities <laughs> to see unique events come up. It it really I don't think doesn't matter. Um, what was you, that? What was the rock club like scene like in the in the seventies in Britain? What did that? What did it feel like? Um, well, Britain was really dark and ugly place in the 1970s. Um, I, w- I want to write something about this, but it was the, the kind of incipient threat of violence everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, we had this, uh, we'd just come through this huge crisis with trade unions, which resulted in working a three-day week, um, in 1974, 75, there wasn't the power to keep offices open for five days. Um, we used to go to the electricity showrooms and look in the windows to see who was going to have power cut off at the weekends. Jeez. So you'd plot when you could watch television with your friends. You think, oh, look, you've got TV on Sunday, so we're going to come to your house Sunday, and then Monday it's everybody back to ours. Wow. Um, and you know, it was like a, it was it was like an Eastern European country. And and then suddenly in 1976, 
this stuff started happening and and you could see kind of where it was coming from the, the sort of boredom and frustration and um uh, and so you know the the clash and the sex pistols and the damned and and the rest of it it was really really exciting but the violence that um quite often happened at football matches you know it, it, those clubs felt like dangerous places and, yeah. and you wouldn't go to the front and, and <laughs> just watching the spitting you know it was extraordinary in the, in the in the stage lights just this hail of spit oh the whole time like a sheet and you know the the, the musicians were getting ill um, like, like if they kept their mouths open to sing oh, wow. and, and and they took a mouthful <laughs> and, you know you get glandular fever and jaundice and oh all kinds God. of things. <laughs> it was pretty dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and meanwhile, at football, there, there were fights between maybe two, and th- two three thousand people every week. Uh, and, and police, you know, complete, couldn't control it. And uh, this was inside the, the stadiums. And, and, and it got to such a, uh, a crisis point by the mid-80s that the whole thing was in danger of of collapsing there were two major disasters very close together where a lot of people died and um 1989 1990 you wouldn't have bet on professional football surviving up until this point um but then uh that's when sky came in and they made the stadium safe and they uh they priced out the hooligans Basically. I mean, it's so funny. It's, yeah. You say 1990, it feels like, oh, that wasn't that long ago. Well, like, like 25 years yeah, ago. 25 I mean, it years really... ago, I know. There are some years that just don't feel old, do No, they? like uh, when I hear 1998, I'm like, oh, that what? Oh, fuck. You know, that was a while ago. Well, I get it now with, um, with, with people saying... Um, Yours was the first book I ever read. <laughs> Things like that. And, and you're looking at an adult, you know, and you think, oh, my God. Come on. But, yeah, I mean, Fever, fever Pitch was 1992. 92, so right. 25 years next. Wow. Know, years time. That's amazing. I mean, does it, it probably doesn't feel like that. It probably doesn't feel like 25 years. It doesn't feel like it at all. Um, but when, when you when some hairy-ass guy, you know, is like a foot taller than you uh, and bald, says, I read this when I was 10 years old. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I don't feel good. Oh. I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or in 83, sorry. That's that hairy-ass guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, you know, the, I mean, so much of your, well, of the male protagonists, anyway, were guys that were completely, I mean, that was my... My brain that just kind of hyper focused obsessive about a thing almost at the expense of the rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I assume with interviews that I've read with you before, you've said, "Oh, when you're writing, you can kind of oh, you you notice yourself like you feel yourself bumping up against yeah, a character." Yeah. Um, I don't. I mean, I think as life's gone on, those obsessions have occupied a smaller part. Of my mind, I think you know the the kids thing. Um, it just they give you so much to worry about and 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 fret about, and they make you miserable in so many uh, <laughs> so many ways that football never even thought of. <laughs> um, so you know, it, the, the, I think some inevitable perspective um, comes in. I couldn't write Fever Pitch and High Fidelity now. But I'm glad I wrote them then. I mean, I, I'm really proud of the books. But when, when, if I ever read a little bit of it, I'm reminded that it was a younger person that wrote them and had this kind of focus. 
I almost wonder if responsibility is the slayer of obsession. I mean, when you have a, when you have more free time, you have more time to obsess over things. Well, but it, when you it have... does fill up gaps, definitely. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm conscious of sitting next to someone who watches <laughs> the Boston Red Sox 182 times a year. And also all the Star Treks and also all and the Bonds. All the I've read all, all of your movies. books too, and Nick. Read, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it fills up some empty, <laughs> empty time. <laughs> you know, I have to say, with Brooklyn, um, Saoirse is a, an incredible actor. I mean, she is, she's been on the podcast before, too. Oh, has she? Incredible. She's, she was super funny, super cool, and... It's really been great because she's. It feels like, oh, she feels like she was just a kid not that long ago, and now she's a she's an adult, and she's you know this is a, an adult role and, and getting married in the movie and all that kind of thing. Yeah, one of the things that terrifies me when I look back on the whole process is that I started this uh, screenplay in two thousand and ten, and Sasha was fifteen or sixteen, wow. and she couldn't have played the part. Um, and I was really frustrated about the time that it was taking to get it together. And uh, we had so many troubles raising finances and things. But, you know, slowly, 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 Sasha was getting older until she was old enough to play the part. And then we got the best possible person in the world for it. Yeah. And that's another year, by the way, that sounds like it wasn't that long ago, 2010. Yeah. Like, that's half a decade what were we doing then? Oh, this. <laughs> <laughs> we did, yeah. We started this in 2010. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's right. But yeah, the red the... mic was here. <laughs> it's just everything. Boy, everything was different. Then. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a cut to the flashback. We're both sitting here. The mics are just... <laughs> Kyle's beard is shorter. <laughs> this yeah. is about so it. Cut to the flashback. Oh, the mics were in the same place. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 something's ever changed. But, you know, but it is important. I mean, you the know... The waters were bigger back then. They are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> change is important though change is scary change is scary but uh, Saoirse is amazing in this movie um, I, I just couldn't believe it the first time I saw a cut of it and um, like you say she's such a great grounded funny smart sassy person as well what part of your psyche does a story like Brooklyn occupy is that are you writing outside like what pieces of you are in that um well, when I read the book, I just felt, I felt a lot. It, it, um, it really kind of punched me. Um, and I, I had a, an emotional connection to it in the same way that you might have an emotional connection to a piece of music that you couldn't have created yourself. So um, there, there are two, two ways of looking at those connections. Some, you, look at, you read something, you think, this is me. And other things, you just think, that's amazing. And... Um, uh, it, it was it was the latter. It was that's amazing, and I could see that if I there's there's a columns a beautiful literary writer and a little bit icier, I guess, because of the distance that he has from his characters. And I could see that if I could smash the ice on the top, then there, there was this wrenching thing inside it. So th the initial connection was was emotional, and then. I guess the way I hooked in was thinking about growing up in a small town and wanting to get out. And so many people in England and the US and Europe end up living in different cities from where they grew up because, because their home city could not provide what, they, what it was they felt that they needed. We all have to go. Where did you grow up? 
Well, I grew up in um, I grew up in a lot of places, but, okay. but, but primarily Memphis, Tennessee. But my family my family moved a lot. But it but but I feel like it's probably more commonplace now. But but a lot of Americans don't leave the towns that they're from. And it's interesting to hear that part of your culture is, oh, a lot of people leave those towns for well, opportunities. I guess the kinds of people I'm talking about, you know, whenever you meet someone in L.A., then they've come to L.A. because there are things that they wanted to do. Yeah, you don't meet a ton of people that are from L.A. Exactly. Um, and uh, <laughs> Sorry, from LA? Okay. <laughs> Get out! <laughs> uh, but most of the time, people... I mean, the, I think the great story, actually, of popular music is um, people who didn't grow up in big cities who wanted to belong somewhere else. Right. Um, and, and, you know, the, Beatle, the Beatles in Liverpool, uh, the Rolling Stones in Dartford, you know, Dartford in Kent, um, nothing for them there. Um, the band in Canada... You know, wanting to make great American music but not being American. Neil Young in in Canada. <laughs> and uh, it, weirdly, there are not that many bands, certainly from the 60s and 70s, from London. It's like people mm. coming to London. It's like, that's where I want to be. Springsteen, you know, that that's the, the, the classic sort of, I want to get out of here and I want to go to where there's something happening and that's that's where i hooked in i guess a bit to but i'm always going to sing about new jersey <laughs> i'm always going to sing about new jersey yeah. marriott <laughs> yeah, but who's the best london band i honestly don't know i mean i honestly don't know who is actually from london oh well I, the, the clash were from london they would be my best london band but um Isn't our big from london too no you see they were from woking oh shit <laughs> they grew up in exactly the kind of town where i grew up oh, okay. like a dormitory town 30 40 miles outside mm-hmm. london how about abc i like 80s rock 80s sheffield oh they were yeah martin fry <laughs> yeah fucking love that band pulp sheffield uh there's so many that, uh, you know, there's all the Manchester bands, obviously. I, was, I, I, read, I read something that said that uh, High Fidelity was almost a you've got mail type of romantic comedy. Uh, that was what the movie. Yeah. Yeah. The, the movie went off on a weird loop. Um, <laughs> I'm glad it came back around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I understand it because it, it, I think when, when that book got optioned, they thought, oh, yeah, this is a movie. And then they sat down and broke it down and thought, oh. It's just a guy thinking in a record <laughs> shop. <laughs> yeah, but he's such a great character. It's such and, a great... and not only that, but he's he's you know I think I think he's around thirty four. Yeah, right? exactly. And so that's a perfect transitional age for a guy yeah. who, especially you know, when there's a ge- like our parents' generation. Didn't they didn't, weren't afforded the luxury of, this, of an extended adolescence, and then there was a generation. It's like, well, you can be an adolescent until ultimately until you die, you know, effectively. Yes. Yeah. And so it's 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 seeing that guy hit around thirty four and kind of going, realizing that he's been in this bubble and like, oh, how do I grow up? Do I grow up? Do I need to grow up? I mean, that's those are. I mean, it's a it's an incredibly philosophical work about what it means to grow up, especially at that point in your life. Yeah, and and how much you can maintain um, while... uh, I think the the whole subject of growing up has become different for us than it was for our parents. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, most most of that generation, they were working at 18, um, married at 21, parents at 25. And for a whole variety of reasons, like everyone has further education now. I, I was the first member of my family to go to university. And, um, and, and that extends things. And then women want to um, establish themselves in a career before they think about having children so people are having children later and later and there's this 10 15 year period uh that uh, other generations never had and uh, and we've had it and we're extending it further and further and further <laughs> uh, and and you know there's always, I hate it when I see things that say oh no man over the age of 40 should be wearing jeans you know you see sometimes in like GQ or Esquire or one of those things and and it's like what difference does it make if yeah I'm, seriously uh, it doesn't matter it do, it really, it really doesn't, doesn't matter but I also I also love the idea that Rob kind of has that very that existential adult moment where he kind of realizes what am I chasing? What am I still chasing? Like you, you know, when you're younger, you're chasing, you chasing, you chasing, you chasing. I think at a certain point, you kind of go, I don't know why I'm doing that. I don't know why I need to do that anymore. Like, what, what do I need to chase all the time? That I guess it, you know, it, it's a weird um, uh, comparison. But one of the things that Brooklyn and High Fidelity have in common is that they're both about committing to a moment. And Ailish, when she goes back to Ireland. She's trying not to commit to one world or the other world. Sure. And Rob is trying not to commit to one job or one person. It's to try and keep options open for as long as you possibly can. And then the terrible, terrifying part of becoming an adult is realising either that all the options have gone <laughs> uh, and you're stuck with this or that you're going to have to, you know, if you still do have options open, you're going to have to go for one of them. And, and it, it is a scary thing. It is, but it's just, you know, it's really just accepting a new set of options. And new is, you know, like I said earlier, when I was kidding about the microphones, change is scary. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I, you know, I mean, you, you, some options are no longer available to you. Yeah. And when you get married, some options are no longer yeah. available to you. But then you have new options, and those new options are actually, for, why did your eyes get all wide? I just got married, that's why. <laughs> I'm getting married in nine months. Well, I mean, it, it's, talk to me then. Your eyes will get wide. <laughs> They're not going to get wide. I am so excited about it. I am so excited about it. You should it. be. It's great. No, but I mean, not even the wedding part. The wedding part's fine. I'm excited about the concept of being married. I'm excited about being Boy, with someone. I wish I could. I wish I could record you and then go back in time two years and play this. To you. Can I tell you something though? I think part of this thing. is because I'm going to be 44 when I get married. Right. And I'm not 25, you know, it's like, I've whatever it is that I, is out of my system, like, I'm just ready to be with someone that I care about, that understands me, that, like, I'm a, you know, do you feel the same way? Uh, completely. I, 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 one thing I don't feel about my marriage is it's closed off options that matter yeah. to me. I, I really enjoy being married, and knowing someone really well is, is a really cool thing. I think. Yeah, because ultimately... Don't listen to him. <laughs> no, I love it. It's the best. Like, but, but what did you want to pull him up on? Well, I just think, like, you know, it's, I just think it's interesting, like, just to hear you now, it's, so, it's very nice. I, I think it's... Wonderful. Well, you know, I met a person that I, you know, it just, it just feels good. It just feels, oh, yeah, this is, this is what this, you know, like, it's... I told you. 
<laughs> what? <laughs> that's what I said to you. I said that you'll know. I know. Like, I know. Oh, it's just, it's just nice, but it's also, you know, watching a character like Rob go through those struggles or, you know, in this movie, watching Ailish trying to decide. But, yeah. you know, then you kind of go, uh, well... You know, everything's a choice, and it's just what set of consequences do I want to live with? And I think it's better to not be chasing all the time. I think it's better to, you know, to really find, make a decision, find something that you that you love, and and stick with it. It's interesting that do you, I'm trying to think to myself if I feel I still have options, and does it matter to me? I don't feel I have too many options, but I don't care about not having them. Well, you maybe you don't have a certain kind of options, but I feel like you still have a wealth of options, you know? I mean, like maybe there's a couple of things, you know, you're not going to go on Tinder, but do you need to do that, you know? Like you're not you have some family responsibility, but then you also have a ton of options, especially because of what you do, and also you can create anything you want. Yeah, I want those kind of options they're there, but it, but it's like I have no option other than to write. Um and I'm either going to write this or I'm, I'm going to write that. And, and that's definitely a closing off of options from earlier on, where I, I might have been an astronaut. <laughs> okay. <laughs> maybe you're not going to be an astronaut at this point. But maybe that's not so bad because, you know... No, astronaut's bad, I think. <laughs> it doesn't sound... It's lonely. Matt wants to be an astronaut. I would have loved to have been an astronaut. My time has passed, guys. But... No, don't say that. <laughs> you know, you can only appreciate something on a surface level when you're doing a bunch of different things, but when you really hone in on one thing or when you really find one relationship that's special to you, that's when you can really create the depth. And I think depth, you know, depth and connection are vital. And that there is a great liberation in not having to think about the other stuff. Think about... You must know, you must know guys... You know, I know guys around my own... People around my own age. You must know people around your age, too... Where it's like they don't have any attachments to anything because they've created these lives where they don't make commitments to anything. And ultimately, they kind of feel... I have somebody in my head. I, I, I'm so tempted to say his name and say, are you listening? <laughs> but I'm not going to say it. And, and, you know, it's like who's to say what's better for another person? But I, I, sometimes I sense from those people like you're just adrift and you're lonely because you're not connected to anything. And, and it's kind of a bummer, you know? I mean, we, we... That's him. Did he just... <laughs> Do you want to talk to my wife? <laughs> sure. Yeah, bring her up on the speakerphone. Hi, Amanda. You're on. Um, you're on a live radio thing. Do you want to talk to people? You're not picking up the tone of this program. It's, 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 they're, they're much more negative than that on the whole. Hi. Hi. Oh, you're going. Is that it? Oh, oh no. I, well, you're actually on speakerphone with me and Jesse. Oh, Jesse. Jesse, do you want to say hello? Hello, this... Jesse. Uh, How, how's your day? Oh, okay. Jay, how was your day? Good. Yeah? Have you played any football? Yeah. Are you coming back from training? Yeah. How was... <laughs> very good training. Very good training. Okay. Uh, but you're not going to talk on this, this, this podcast, are you? So I'm going to get off the phone. Yeah. All right. Bye. 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 Arsenal rules! Bye. 
<laughs> Bye. Enjoy not having options. Oh, she's, oh, she's good. I'm so sorry. No, that was great. You know, I'm just I'm surprised when you said you're on a live radio thing. It just didn't click. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, lastly, I want to say before we let you go. So, uh, when, Brooklyn, when does Brooklyn come out? When does Brooklyn come out? Yesterday. It's out. Came out yesterday. Yeah. So Brooklyn's out now. People can see in, it in New York. Hello. Donald Gleason's yeah. in it as well. Yeah. Uh, and and Sir Sharon in it. and this really great. Um, young actor called Emery Cohen and Jim Broadbent and yeah. Jim Broadbent. Oh my God, he's yeah. uh, he's just one of those guys that no matter what he's doing, you, you can't not watch him. No, and and you trust him with your life as well. There's so much depth in everything that he's that everything that comes out of his mouth. Um, and he yeah he plays this this priest. One of the thing I love about one of the things I love about Brooklyn is that. If people haven't read the book, then they always presume that somebody's done something bad. Like she meets this New York guy called Tony who just seems charming. And, and movie language, you're going, OK, what's his, his story? Who's, he's chopped women up and put them under he's the a gang, He's in a gang of New York. He's in, a, he's, a, he's in a gang of New York. He's already married. He's got kids. And there's nothing. He's just like this super charming guy. And then Father Flood. Jim Broadbent, why is he doing this? Why is he arranging all this stuff for Ailish? Just because he feels sorry for her. That's it. And everybody has the best of motives, and yet you can't stop the pain and distress of their lives anyway. That's a, a terrible thing about life. The last thing I want to say to you is, I, and I'm, I know I'm sure this comes up a lot, but I want to tell you, I bear you no ill will, even as a Radiohead fan. It doesn't bother me in the slightest that you had an opinion. It's weird that you brought it up then. No. You know why? <laughs> because people, I think people always bring it up in a challenging way where they're like, how could you not like it's... Kid A? And you're like, and I, I read your explanation. You just said, you know, it just didn't resonate with me. And so I don't understand, even as a fan of that, a huge fan of that band, why you can't have a fucking opinion without, like, why is that it, a problem? It's amazing, the Kid I thing, because, um, you know, that was, what, uh, 14 years ago? Right. 14 years ago. And uh, somebody tried to send me a, a, a hate mail on the 10th anniversary of my review. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that makes me laugh about it, I mean, I, you know, I, I wrote about this for The New Yorker, which meant I had to write a lot, and I had to listen to it a lot for, like, two, three weeks. Yeah. Four or five times a day, and each day I hated it more. <laughs> and um, and and then people all the time they say, you know that kid A review you wrote? I say, yeah. They said, have you changed your mind? Say, oh yeah, I woke up today and I thought, you know what? That record I hated so much fourteen years ago. I'm going to play it all day the today. The fiftieth time <laughs> yeah, I listened. Right. Nick, maybe if you listen to it right after watching Casino Royale. No, that's uh, not yeah, going to change hey, anything. What's What's the worst Bond film? Uh, my least favorite is Thunderball. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's uh, there's not View to a Kill. View to a Kill is so corny in eighties. It's beautiful. Uh, but so Thunderball I, is maybe just... I watched Thunderball then listen to Kid A. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that's maybe that'll maybe you'll be like, oh, hey. Uh, this has yeah. got some cheese. Have you ever it. met the band? Have you ever met the band? Uh, I I did meet um, Johnny once, but uh, when they were still good. <laughs> they, I saw them throwing heat with uh, Nick Hornby. I saw them on the OK Computer tour. You know, the Benz I think is the greatest rock album. I think it's just incredible, the bands. And my thing about all art is, and I think it's true, it's how I feel about abstract art as well, is like if you can paint 
And if you can do all the things that you want to do with colour and light and you can paint people <laughs> and buildings as well, do that. And if you're making music and you can say all the things you want to say and uh, incorporate all these strange different sounds and you can make a song, then do that. And And for me, most abstracted art takes you up a blind alley and people always come back in the end to the structure of figurative painting or song or narrative fiction. Yeah. And those are the things that people love the most in the end. They're the things that last. And for me, the Bens will be listened to for longer than, than Kiddo. They're, <laughs> they're super talented people. Yeah. Well, I honestly can't thank you enough for being here. Uh, it was really an honor to meet you. And you're such a fun hang. Like you just, oh, I loved it. I could sit here all day. We could have you here all day. Uh, you Please, when are you, when are you back? And are you coming back in the States anytime soon? To I hope so. All right, good. Yeah. When you do, please come back. I will. All right. Or maybe we'll just have a coffee. Yes. Maybe we don't have to record everything. <laughs> well, I don't know. And we got to get together to um, do our, our Christmas message. We have to, the, to make the Christmas message that we're going to people air of on, Oregon on public on, on uh, yes local cable time in, in Portland, Oregon. Yes, if you want, the socks are in California. Cheryl Strayed, who wrote Wild, uh, the, the memoir, she lives up there, so I could like address her. Personally. I'll tell you what, because of your, I'll tell you what we'll do. Because you think the Bends is one of the greatest rock of all time, we'll buy cable time in Bend, Oregon. That's what we'll do. Yeah. It's done. It's right there. Is there a band called Bend? Probably. Like, there's no band called Oregon. There's, there's not a band. There's not a band. Taking there must have been a band, called, a band called The Bends, which was Ben Queller, Ben Folds. The Bends. Ben oh, which you know, Ben. Ben, you did an album I, with Ben I, Folds. I love Ben Ben's Folds. Ben's a really good friend of mine. Oh, is he? Yes. The, the, the first track off that album is fucking great. Because he's, he's saying... A working day. Yes, working yeah. day. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah. he's saying uh, something about, like... Someone on the net said something negative about me, uh, but it's cool. What is it? What's the line? But it's cool because they have a blog. Yes, like it's exactly. something like that. Yeah. Oh, oh, and that. Someone on the net said something negative about know. me, and they should know. They have their own. They blog. have their own blog. Yeah. It's such a fucking great song. <laughs> yeah. Was that how was that how was writing an album basically? Incredible. Um, talk yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what what happened with Ben was that I uh, it's it's kind of a cute story, but I wrote this book called Songbook where I wrote essays about songs that I loved, and I wrote um, an essay about his song um, called Smoke, yeah. and uh, and I I think everything Ben does is so melodically incredible, but I focused on the words of this song Smoke, which I, I think the words of Smoke on on the second album are in, incredible. Yeah. And um, and he sent me an email via my publishers, and he was really you know gracious. So thank you. I'm so glad you like the work. He said, "I got to say, that's the only song I didn't write the words of on that <laughs> album." So all the praise I gave him, yeah. you know, he said, "You know, you could have chosen any one of another 35 songs, and they would have been my words, but those weren't my words." And uh, uh, and he invited me to a show. We, I went to see the show. Went to meet him. And then one day he got a, uh, I got an email from him and, and he said, hey, you want to write a song for William Shatner? <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, yeah, of course I want to write a song for William Shatner. And, um, and he, so I, I wrote this song for like a persona, in the persona of a very, very bad dad called That's Me Trying. And, um, 
uh, and, and he's been out of touch with his kids for like 30, 40 years and he's, he's, it's the first awkward steps to trying to get in touch. That's fantastic. And uh, the, the song is, is beautiful. The melody is lovely and, and, and Bill do, does his declaiming thing over <laughs> the top and apparently caused a great deal of fuss because I think in the, in the lyrics of the song um, he was addressing a, a daughter. No, he was addressing a... Yeah, I think he was addressing a daughter. And Bill switched it so that it was addressing a son. And apparently he had a son that he hadn't seen for <laughs> oh, wow. a number of Holy years. Shit. So it's like, why would you do that when people you're just going to upset people? <laughs> then um, uh, Ben phoned up and he said, Hi, Nick, it's Ben. I said, Hi, Ben. And he just said, I've got Bill for you. And he put... <laughs> <laughs> it didn't give me any chance to say anything. So I'm talking to William Shatner in my kitchen. And, and, and William Shatner said, I, I really like the words you did. And I'd like to work on you. Um, I'd work with you on the rest of the words that I've written for this album. And uh, I said, OK. And, uh, and he sent me like this file full of lyrics. And, and he called me back. He said, you got the file? I said, I got the file. He said, OK, open the first one. And uh, um, I was reading this lyric and it was really... Um, quite raw lyric. And, uh, and I said, oh, this one's called Why Me? And he said, oh, yeah, Why Me? That's a really personal song to me. It's about uh, when I uh, came home one night and my wife was um, drowned in the swimming pool. And uh, I said, oh, okay. Uh, he said, do you think you can do anything with that? And, um, and I said, uh, you know what, Bill? I, I, I really think this would be best coming <laughs> from you. Oh my god, what an amazing story. Uh, oh anyway, and I kind of weaseled out of it and um he Top 5 weirdest phone conversations. <laughs> yes. And he uh so this album is called Has Been that that Ben produced for William Shatner and it's where he did that Common People. Yeah. Um it's got that on it and Amy Mann sings back up on the song that I wrote. Um Anyway, then, you know, a few weeks later, Ben phoned up and said, well, that went pretty well. Just send me, let's do an album. And um, so I, it was, for a few months, I was just in songwriting mode. Any idea that I might have had for a short story or a scene in a novel went to a song. And, um, and I, I didn't really know how to do it. I just wrote up something that looked like a lyric. I'd never done it before. And Ben would either say, I got nothing, or, yeah. Um, and it was all because if he had something, then the rhythm of the lyric would spark up a melody for him immediately. And, um, and if he had nothing, he'd just say, oh, I like the lyric, I got, no, I got nothing for it. And it meant that sometimes I would send him a lyric like the end of my working day in England, and when I come in in the morning and log on, there'd be an MP3. Oh, that's great. It was unbelievable. There's a song on there called Your Dogs, um, and it's about um, a liberal guy who's trying to understand his next-door neighbour, but the, the next-door neighbour's got, like, big attack dogs and um, guns and, and you know, people are coming to his house all the time, and he, he's sort of trying to understand this guy. And the chorus is, but your dogs, your dogs. What's fun about those? Um, <laughs> And, and and Ben read the lyrics. He said, I just sat down. And he had this piano riff. And then he had a toy bass guitar. And he did his own drumming. He's an incredible drummer. So I just got this MP3 back that was Ben doing all the parts. And, and it was just finished. And he'd done it in like 12 hours. He, he is 
what goes on in his mind musically is is really extraordinary. Well, people should buy that. It's a, it's available on iTunes if you want the album. You should buy it. It came out 2010, I think. Oh, it's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was just the... Oh, that was five years ago. It's called Lonely Avenue. Yeah. Yes. So Brooklyn and Lonely Avenue. Nick Hornby, uh, great to see you. Anything, what, what, uh, what are you working on after this that you want to... Anything you want to... I'm working on a movie with Jason Reitman at the moment about a family of bank robbers. I hope um, that we'll get to shoot that next year. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I've just adapted a a book for the BBC, um, and I've written an original screenplay for Rosamund Pike, which hopefully will get made next year as well. Want to leak anything? Any newsworthy stuff? Do you want an exclusive? Also, also, here's an exclusive. um, Have you ever had a guy called Chris Milk in here? No. Uh, um, He's at the forefront of virtual reality filmmaking and um and i'm i'm trying to work on something with him maybe a 20 minute drama have you done this stuff have you put the, the vr stuff on? yeah yeah i've done yes uh i couldn't believe it we've have, done i've done oculus and yeah. yeah well he's got a company called verse and and two or three of the little films he's made are extraordinary he's just made the new u2 video um which i think might be out now where when you put the goggles on bono's just <laughs> looking at you and singing to you. Yeah, and then... Sorry, put that album on your phone. <laughs> what? <laughs> and then the drums from behind you and you swivel around and there's a drummer. And, and then there's a lady's voice and you swivel around and the, the lady's in France and the world switched on you. And it, it's amazing. But I, they want to try and do a 20-minute a, a uh, feature. Excellent. Uh, which I'm writing. Well, thank you so much. So good to see you. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Thank you. The end. We did it. Go oh, Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.